blessed to have the sermon today by Mr. Matt Steele entitled, titled, excuse me, Esther Part 1. Thank you, Owen. It takes a lot of bravery to lead songs a cappella. So I really appreciate him doing that today. So uh, last weekend, uh, Renee and I and uh, a few other chaperones had uh, the pleasure of taking our teens and young adults to Branson on a road trip in a 15-passenger van. Uh, through the rain and um, some uh, just fun and uh, sharing some really neat road trip songs that everybody enjoyed that I made them listen to. Um, I was trying to find the, the, the weirdest songs that I could play on the, on the radio. But uh, we had uh, a lot of fun and we went to Branson um, to go to the Sight and Sound Theater and watch the show, Esther. So that was the inspiration for this, this message. And uh, I know uh, many of la you ladies did the Bible study several years ago now, uh, I think, for, uh, on Esther. And so I think uh, you probably could give this sermon better than I could, because I know it's a Beth Moore one, right? She went into a lot of detail. I was reading through Renee's Beth Moore study book and getting some insights, and there's a lot of great information in there. And so we, um, we went to see the story of Esther played out in the Sight and Sound Theater. Uh, and is, uh, who's been to that theater in Branson? Yeah, a number of you. I mean, it is an amazing experience. The, the stage wraps around you. I mean, it's... They just need to put part of it at the back, and they'll be completely surround. I mean, it's an amazing experience. Um, so I'd highly recommend going to see one of those shows there. They're always biblically based. So we've seen Moses, Noah, Jonah. Did we see David? We didn't see David. Samson, we've done one on Jesus. We didn't see that one. Um, so just amazing set of set of shows. So, um, yeah, so this was the, uh, the inspiration for, the, for this message. And one of the things that we were trying to communicate to our young people uh, and our teenagers is that they are needed and wanted and that they are special and that, that we are glad that they are here in our church family and we enjoy them and appreciate the light that they bring to our family. And, and so I just wanted to reiterate that again today. That God is calling them. That God's calling is on them to be his own special people. Just like the rest of us. God is calling them to be his sons and daughters. So that was what I would say is the story within the story of our trip. You guys familiar with this concept of the story within a story? Well, if you watch television and you, you watch TV dramas, 
you see stories within stories, right? You have the, the overarching story that, that culminates in the season finale where they defeat the bad guy or whatever it is. But within each episode is a story within the story. And that makes up the fabric of the overall story. And so in a larger sense, like Esther, we are all living in a story set in a larger story. John Eldridge describes it this way. He says that we are all living in this love story set in a world of war. We're living in a love story set in a world of war. And we see that world around us more and more at war with the things that we know to be true, with the principles of God and the society that we used to claim was a Christian society. C.S. Lewis tells us that this war is a civil war and that this part of the, the larger empire, the larger universe, this part has been occupied by the rebellion. And this is the part that God chose to put us on. We are living in occupied territory. And it's easy when we turn on the news, when we open the newspaper, if anybody does a newspaper anymore. Sorry, Jan. I know you worked in the newspaper a long time. Good. Somebody still wants the old, good old newspaper. But when we do those things, when we look at the news and we look at what's going on and we get online and Facebook and we're bombarded with all of this news, it's easy, isn't it, for our own story to just get overwhelmed, to want to check out, to not want to even see the world anymore and participate in it at all. And yet Jesus told us to be in the world not of the world. And so it's easy for our own <coughs> individual story to get overwhelmed by the larger story of this fallen world. And yet, <coughs> our individual stories matter, I think, more to God than the larger story. He's already written the larger story. We can all turn to the back of the book, right? And he wins. And it's already won. It's already finished. It's just a matter of time until the king returns. But our story feels less certain, doesn't it? Our story doesn't feel quite as finished because we're living it. We're experiencing it. We're in it day by day. <coughs> and there's a reason why, I think, our story feels less finished. And we'll touch upon that as we go through the story of Esther. But our hopes, our wants, our desires, our dreams are deeply important to God. And I want you to hold that and be willing to accept that, that he wants to know your story. He wants to write your story just as much 
as you want to know your story. We see this pattern repeated often within Scripture. There's the larger story, but then God has taken care to tell us of the individual story, hasn't he? David and his individual struggles and his sins laid bare and open for the world to read for thousands of years now. His personal story. Solomon and all the prophets. Jeremiah and all of the struggles that he had. (coughs) These stories are personal stories of individuals within the larger story. And we see this played out (coughs) in the story of Esther. So most of us are probably familiar with her story. But for our purposes today, we are going to dig into some of this. And and I I mistakenly thought that I could go over the entire story of Esther in one sermon. That's not going to happen. So it's part one. (coughs) But I want us to, to look at some of the elements of this story and maybe pull out some things that we haven't seen before even something that Beth Moore didn't notice, shocker, uh, that, that uh, came to my mind when I was thinking about this message. So, going to Esther chapter 1 and verse 1, he says, Now it came to pass <coughs> in the days of Ahasuerus, I, don't, I cannot get that guy's name right, so I'm just going to call him Xerxes, because the Greeks made it easier. In those days... When King Xerxes sat on the throne of his kingdom, which was in Shushan, the citadel, that in the third year of his reign, he made a feast for all of his officials and servants, the powers of Persia and Media, the nobles and the princes of the provinces being before him. And when he showed the riches of his glorious kingdom and the splendor of his excellent majesty for many days, 180 days, in all. So this was a very humble man, right? <laughs> Showing off all the glories of his realm and his reign. And, and what did he actually do to establish that? He was born. Because <laughs> he inherited this, right? So it's kind of funny that he's showing off this powerful kingdom that his predecessors built. But still, He had this for many days, 180 days. And when these days were completed, the king made a feast lasting seven days for all the people who were present in Shushan at the citadel (coughs) from from great to small in the court of the garden of the king's palace. And there were white and blue linen curtains fastened with cords of fine linen and purple on silver rods and marble pillars and couches were of gold and silver. That just does not sound comfortable to me, sitting on a golden couch. I want it soft. But uh, I'm sure they had pillows. Uh, A mosaic pavement of alabaster and turquoise and white and black marble, and they served drinks in golden vessels, each vessel being different from the other, with royal wine in abundance, according to the generosity of the king. Who's had wine out of a golden vessel? Yeah, no, I haven't had wine out of a golden vessel. 
In accordance with all the law, the drinking was not compulsory. Isn't that an interesting phrase? People were not forced to drink. I just found that interesting. Because it's easy to maybe think that we have some sort of event going on where there's just all of this, you know, what shall we say, hedonism going on, and they're, they've had all these celebrations, and, and they're getting drunk, and, and people, you know, of course, don't behave very well when they're drunk. And, and yet, it wasn't required. Teetotalers were welcome. And so I just kind of find it uh, something interesting. And for so the king had ordered all the officers in his household that they should do according to each man's pleasure. So in other words, celebrate in the way in which you are comfortable celebrating. Pretty open-minded, this king. Queen Vashti also made a feast for the women in the royal palace, which belonged to King Xerxes. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, so he was certainly drinking, he commanded uh, all of these gentlemen, Nehumen, Bithra, Habana, Bigtha, Abig, Ab, Abig, Abigtha, Zethar. Was he saying all of these names after he's drunk? <laughs> uh, I don't know. Carcass and seven eunuchs who served in the presence of the king to bring Queen Vashti before the king wearing her royal crown in order to show her beauty to the people and the officials for she was beautiful to behold. And then there was trouble. Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command brought by his eunuchs. Therefore the king was furious and his anger burned within him. And then the king said to the wise man who understood the times, for this was the king's manner toward all who knew law and justice. And I'm not going to read all those guys' names again. All the princes of Persia and Media, who had access to the king's presence, who ranked highest in the kingdom. And so he goes to these guys and he says, what shall we do to Queen Vashti? And I think this is a little wimpy of him, because he knew what he wanted to do to Queen Vashti. But he's making these guys bring it up. Well, I don't know, my advisors told me to do it, so it's not my fault. According to the law, because he did, she did not obey the command of the king uh, brought to her by the eunuchs. And uh, Mamushin answered before the king and the princes, Queen Vashti has not only wronged the king, but also all the princes and all the people who are in the provinces of the king. For the queen's behavior will become known to all women. This is kind of funny, isn't it? Their real beef with it was that their wives would now take the example of Queen Vashti and not do as they're told. This is the real upset. For the queen's behavior will become known to all women so that they will despise their husbands in their eyes when they report the king, the king commanded Queen Vashti to be brought forth before him, but she did not. This very day, the noble ladies of Persia and Media will say to all the king's officials, 
that they have heard of the behavior of the queen. Thus, there will be excessive contempt and wrath, and they will say, make your own dinner. If it pleases the king, let the royal decree go out from him, and let it be recorded in the laws of the Persians and the Medes, that it will not be altered, that Vashti shall come no more before the king, and let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. When the king's decree, which he will make, is proclaimed throughout his empire, for it is great, all wives will honor their husbands, both small and great. I wonder if that really happened. And the reply pleased the king and the princes, and the king did according to the word of Mnuchin. And they sent letters to all the king's provinces, to each province in its own script, and to every people in their own language, that each man should be the master of his own house and speak in the language of his own people. I mean, they were serious about making sure these ladies didn't start to get uppity ideas against their husbands. Not exactly what we would call... Uh, equality in the Persian and the Mede Empire, right? They, uh, they had not yet progressed, to say the least. Now, when we look at this story, of course, we're looking at it from our vantage point with our perspective on the world and our history and everything that we, we know about this time. And, and we can see in the book of Esther that the stage is set, right? The king had a queen, but in order for the story of Esther to take place, the queen has to get rid of somehow, and, and, and here we go with the process that we find in this story. The story is this. There's a great king who ruled a great empire, a powerful empire, and this great king was rejected by his queen in spite of the fact that he had made her queen, that he had blessed her with all of the, the riches of that role, of that position, that he had poured his love onto her, and that he admired her, and he put, put all of this onto her, and yet she rejected this great king. She would not submit herself to the king, and so she lost her place setting in motion the events that would lead to the rise of a young woman we call Esther. A very simple reading of the story of Esther would just see it like that. But through Esther's personal story of struggle and of triumph, we can see the larger story, the larger story that's being written in this personal story, and it, it's being played out right before us. Asta's story is important. Her personal story is inspirational, and it is important. But the larger story is an epic story that she is a part of, played out on top of and behind her own personal story. In fact, the larger story is the reason why she is in Persia at all. 
and not in her homeland of Israel. This is what I think is the larger story, and you can tell me what you think of this idea. The larger story is this. The great king Xerxes, as he's known in the Greek, is a type or a representative of God. The great king of the whole world. In fact, the kings of Persia were often referred to as king of kings. Vashti, this beautiful yet rebellious queen, is a type or a symbol for a representative of God's bride, Israel. The beautiful bride of the king of kings. But she rejected the king. Esther is the new queen. She is humble, she is gracious, and she is brave. She is faithful to her king, her people, and above all, to God. She represents who? See where I'm going with this, maybe? Who would Esther represent? The church. In this great epic story, within the story of Esther. The bride of Christ, called to be the bride of the king of kings. Not because of inheritance, or genealogy, because we can see that she does not even have any royal blood. She's not of the tribe of Judah, most likely. The man that raised her, we often call her, uh, call him her uncle, was actually her cousin, and his much older cousin. He was of the tribe of Benjamin, not of the tribe of Judah. And so she didn't have royal claim, even in Israel. But she was queen by faith. She was faithful in all things. And then we have the final character. Who's missing from this play? We have the king of kings. We have the rebellious wife who's divorced. We have the new wife, the church. Who's missing from the story? Satan, the enemy. Haman, the wicked usurper who is filled with hatred towards those who look, who took, rather, what he thought was rightfully his. Does that sound familiar? And so then the stage is set for this story to begin. But remember, while each player represents a larger player in the larger story, these symbols and analogies do break down at some point. Xerxes is nothing like Jesus. He is not of that character. But in this symbolism, in this epic story that's sitting on top of Esther and her personal story, he is that king of kings. And this point brings us to another important element of the book of Esther. It is a book and a story that is written in what's called a chiastic structure. Probably many of you ladies that did the Bible study 
uh, learned about this, a chiastic structure. Well, what is that? In literary terms, a chiasmus is a device in which ideas are presented and then sub subsequently repeated or inverted in symmetrical mirror-like structure. Does that make a lot of sense? And we're having a small jet take off over there. Let me say that again. In literary terms, a chiasmus is a device, a literary device, in which ideas are presented and then subsequently repeated or inverted in a symmetrical mirror-like structure. Still no clearer? Pretty technical explanation. Here's an example. This is from Matthew chapter 23 and verse 12. Jesus says, Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. You can see those elements at work there, that it's inverting. So we're going from exaltation to humbleness, but humbleness to exaltation. This presents the idea that by doing the opposite of what you might think, or the opposite of what everybody thinks you should do, is actually the way in which to achieve that thing. We would all agree, if anybody wants to be exalted, just for their own sake, right? they just want power and uh, exaltation, that's probably not the person to give it to, is it? But a person that is humble, that works for others, that serves, that is looking to help others, well, if you give them power, some authority, they'll be able to do more. And so it's about the matter of the heart. Another example, uh, Jesus made this example, and this is one that I think is pretty relevant to us. He said to them, in Mark chapter 2, verse 27, 28, he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. Therefore, the Son of Man is also Lord of the Sabbath. So this is useful for us to remember, and it's again, it's chiastic, it, it flips it, because we look at the Sabbath as what? What is it? Remember the Sabbath day? It's a commandment, right? It's a commandment. This is something you must do. And that's true. But then Jesus flips it on its head. He inverts it, as it were, and he says, <laughs> the Sabbath wasn't made to structure you and order you around and, and make you be in a place and a time. It was made for you as a tool to use the difference. We're not made for the Sabbath. The Sabbath is an instrument for us to use. So certainly in our tradition when we try and keep the Sabbath, there's a tendency to want to, well, how do I have to do this and try and get things exactly right? And I understand that. But Jesus is telling us, look at it differently. Look at it the opposite way around. This is a tool for you rest, 
to be restored, to be strengthened. It isn't a rigid control on your life. So these are just some examples of this chiastic approach that is used in the writing of the story. The whole book of Esther is a series of chiastic devices wrapped within a chiasm. It really is. Because God is, is taking one thing that seems this way and he's inverting it. And we'll, we'll see that as we go through the story. God flips the narrative on its head. He inverts outcomes. He raises the humble. He defends his people. And he abases the proud. He takes the wicked, takes their plans and their, all the works that they conspire to do against God's people, and he brings it against them. And what's really interesting about Esther, and I, I never noticed this before, is that he does all of this through the entire book of Esther without his name being mentioned one time. Your name is not in the book of Esther. But his hands are all over it. We can see his work and how he's guiding everything. What does that make you think of? makes me think of the world that we live in today. When his name is mentioned, it's often, it's a curse word, isn't it? His name is not mentioned in the world in the sense of they're calling upon God. There are Christians within the world that do, of course, but this isn't a Christian world. His name's not mentioned, but his hands are in control. He's all over this world. And so the chiasm of that would be that the story of Esther reminds us that God moves in history. History does not move God. And that's an important for us to remember. So turning back to the story of Esther and picking it back up to chapter 2 and verse 1, he says, After these things, when the wrath of the king had subsided, he remembered Vashti, and what he, had, what he had done, and that he decreed against her. And then the king's servants who attended him said, Let beautiful young virgins be sought for the king, and let the king appoint offices in all the provinces of his kingdom, that they may gather all the beautiful young virgins to Shushan, the citadel, to the women's quarters under the custody of he, uh, he uh, how do you say that? Haggai? Yeah, Haggai, the king's eunuch, custodian of the women. And let beauty preparations be given them, and let the young men, women who pleases the king be, uh, be queen instead of Vashti. This thing pleased the king, and he did so. So, the search was on for the new king, I mean for the new queen. And you would think that out of all of the beautiful young women in the empire, the chance of a daughter of captive people 
and, and just, you know, obscurity. The chances of her being selected to become queen got to be near zero. And so we see this reversing and this flipping again, this chiastic work again as God is writing the story. But that's not all. Because we also need to know about the man who raised her. A man we call Mordecai. Often he's called Mordecai the what? A Jew. But he's not Jewish. He was Benjamite. And in Esther chapter 2 and verse 5 we read this. And Shushan, the citadel, there was a certain Jew, not Jewish, <laughs> whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jer, the son of uh, Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjaminite. So clearly we've got this term Jew just meaning Hebrew. Kish had been carried away from Jerusalem with the captives who had been captured with uh, Jeconiah, the, the king of Judah, from Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, that he carried them away. And Mordecai had been brought up, uh, had brought up Hadassah, that is Esther, his uncle's daughter, for he had neither father, uh, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman was lovely and beautiful. When her father and mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. And this is another one of these reversals that God does here because he's providing a father for the fatherless. And this beautiful, almost like kinsman redeemer type situation, he adopts this young girl as his own daughter. Kind of struck me because we don't, <laughs> in our world today, we don't look at the value of fathers, do we? Fathers are the, the butt of all the jokes. They're, they're not necessary um, in society and in media and so on. Fathers are just reduced and debased. And of course, there's a reason for that. But think about the kind of man that Mordecai must have been to raise this young woman, this young girl, into womanhood. And what a woman that she was. And yet, Mordecai took that on and raised her with all the trauma that she had from losing parents. All of the negative things that could have come in this, this young girl's life, and he was there to help answer those things. He became her father. He took that place. That's a beautiful truth and strength of fatherhood how critical it is that we father our children. Not just by providing material, not just by providing food and shelter, but providing ourselves to them. And so I thought it was useful to point that out, especially as we are celebrating Father's Day tomorrow, to appreciate the value of our fathers personally. And maybe our father was wounded and broken and not as great as he could have been. But there are other fathers, I hope, 
have been in our life that we can look to as those fathers. And it's so very important that we have fathers in our lives. They're the role models for what godly men should be if done right. And by right, I don't mean perfect. Because any one of us as fathers knows our flaws. This world does not realize it, but it is the lack of real fathers in this world that I think is making an almighty mess of things. You know, one of the things that came to mind just recently with all of this, and I'll just touch on it briefly, all this gender nonsense and men competing in women's sports, where are the fathers of these young girls? Why are they not dragging these individuals out of the competition and just locking them outside? You know, you don't have to beat on them. <laughs> you don't have to injure them. But why are they not there stopping this from happening? I don't know. Things that our culture and civilization are just accepting. So Mordecai was a good father. He raised an amazing daughter, and she was his daughter. Something else that Mordecai did well was instruct Esther to keep her ethnicity and her family a secret. And it's interesting, isn't it, that other cultures, it's not just our culture that has had a problem with racism. Every culture has had a problem with racism. And, and even though clearly she must have looked enough like Medes and Persians to pass as one of them, they were still racist towards where she came from. So to keep this quiet. So turning to Esther chapter 2 and verse 12, it says, Each young woman's turn came to go to the king after she had completed 12 months preparation according to the regulations for the women. For thus were the days of their uh, preparation apportioned, six months with oil of myrrh and six months with perfumes and preparations for beautifying women. <laughs> six months at the spa. That seems a little excessive. And six months of perfumes. Could you imagine that? That you'd never have to put on deodorant ever again. I mean, it just permeates your body. <laughs> this is crazy. Thus prepared, each young woman uh, went to the king, and she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the women's quarters uh, to the king's palace. In the evening she went, and in the morning she returned to the second house of the women, to the custody of, I'm not going to say that name because I'll say it wrong, the king's eunuch who kept the concubines. She would not go in to the king again unless the king delighted in her and called, her, called for her by name. Now, uh, when the turn came for Esther, the daughter um, of Mordecai, who had been, uh, who had taken her as a, a daughter to go to the king. She requested nothing for 
So what Haggai, the king's eunuch, and the, custo the custodian of the women advised. And Esther uh, obtained favor in the sight of all who saw her. So Esther was taken to the king and to his royal palace in the tenth month, which is the month of Teveth, in the seventh year of his reign. The king loved, es loved Esther more than all the other women, and she obtained grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins. So he set the royal crown upon her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king made a great feast, the feast of Esther, for all of his officials and servants, and he proclaimed a, a holiday in the provinces and gave gifts according to the generosity of the king. So Esther was gathered with all these young women and taken to the palace, as the scripture tells us, and given all these beauty preparations. And the King James Bible, of course, skips over a lot of things here because this isn't a good process. This is a very broken part of humanity that we see here. Because we see this king who's brought all of these virgins, how many we don't know, all these beautiful young women, and he gets to decide who he would pick from them to be the queen. And it's pretty obvious how he decides that. This is a broken process. These young women have been snatched away from their families, from their life, from any sense that they would get married to a good man and raise their own children in their own home and have their own life. That is over for them. The best that they can go for is that they become the queen. Because at least then they have some authority and they can conduct themselves as queens. But in spite of all this brokenness that we see, there is another reversal, a chiasmic process that's going on here that God works out in Esther. Reversing the fortunes of this woman of captive people. Reversing her from being completely unknown to ascending to the queen's throne. Above everybody else except the king. Replacing the first queen and becoming the new queen. And as we'll see, she was the queen who humbled herself before the king. She was opposite of Vashti. And this process reminds me of the passage in Romans chapter 11 and verse 1. Remember earlier I mentioned that in this larger story, Vashti is kind of a symbol for the nation of Israel who rejected God. And Esther is the church who has accepted God. Concerning Israel and the first queen of God, Paul says this, I say then, as has God cast away his people? Certainly not, for I am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, the tribe of Benjamin, Esther's tribe. God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. Or do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? How he pleads 
with God against Israel, saying, Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what does the divine response say to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Even so then, at this present time, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. And if by grace, then it is no longer works, Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. But if it is of works, it is no longer grace. Otherwise, work is no longer work. This first queen, like Vashti, Israel is cut off in a manner. Why? They didn't live by faith. They were not faithful to God. Romans, uh, Paul continues in Romans in verse 11. He says, I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? Certainly not. But through their fall, to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Now, if their fall is the riches of the world and their failure riches for the Gentiles or for the church, how much more their fullness? Over in Jeremiah chapter 3 and verse 8, there is a cutting off process here. God says it this way. He says, Then I saw that for all the causes for which backsliding Israel had committed adultery, I had put her away and given her a certificate of divorce. Yet her treacherous sister Judah did not fear, but went and played the harlot also. So it came to pass that through her casual harlotry that she defiled the land and committed adultery with the stones and trees, the pagan practices that they were engaged in. And yet for all of this, her treacherous sister Judah has not returned to me with her whole heart, but in pretense, says the Lord. Just like Vashti, God divorced Israel, like just like as the king divorced Vashti. And Judah was just as bad. Judah has been just as bad. In fact, that's why Esther and Mordecai are in this place. That's why they were there. Because of their unfaithful hearts. Because they had rejected God and had not humbled themselves to him. So turning back to Romans in verse 19, we see the reversal that the church is now the bride. The church is now the bride and has taken Israel's place in this sense. But then we are told to not get slack, to not do the things like what we were talking about earlier in the Bible study and say, well, but we have the truth. Just as much as they were saying, well, we are of Abraham. How much did God care that they were of Abraham? Zero. So Paul cautions us here. He says, you will say then, branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. Yes, because of unbelief they were broken off. And you stand by faith. You hear what it's saying? We stand by faith. Not because we have the truth. Stand by faith. Truth is important, and we're about the truth. And so we need to understand the truth of this is, it's by faith that we are saved. 
not by works. Do not be haughty, but fear. Have respect for. Be aware that it's by faith. It's not by works. You cannot earn this. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he may not spare you either. Therefore consider the goodness and severity of God on those who fell severity, but toward you, goodness, if you continue in his goodness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. And they also, if they do not continue in unbelief, there's that faith coming back in, they will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. For if you were cut out of the olive tree, which is wild by nature, and were grafted contrary to nature, into the cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, who are of the natural branches, be grafted in to their own olive tree? He's belaboring the point. But we really, really need to take him serious. We cannot just rest on our laurels. Well, we've got, we've got the truth, we've got the holy days, we've got Sabbath, we've got all of these things. That's great. Keep those things but it's by faith. Do we have faith? Are we practicing faith? Are we walking in faith? Are those things that we know to be true, things that we're willing to share in our life by the way that we live our life, as we talked about earlier in the Bible study? Do we have faith that God has already performed his work of salvation for us. Do we truly believe that and accept that? Are we still thinking there's some things I might have to do in order to earn that? Try and be right. Try and do everything correct. Try to be better. These things of themselves are not bad, but if they are a replacement for faith, Paul says, that's what they do. That's what the first wife did. But we, as the new bride of Christ, need to live and stand by faith. I think Esther is a perfect example of what Paul is trying to explain. What could she have done to prepare to be queen? I mean, she's living her life. She's you know, living in the Jewish quarter of, of the citadel. And what could she have prepared? What could she have done to be ready to be queen? Nothing. There's nothing she could have done. It was all done for her. She, okay, she went through the beautification process for 12 months having the spa treatment. Okay, but she wasn't doing anything. It was being done to her. The work was being done on her and in her, preparing her. She wasn't doing a thing. When was she selected? She was selected by the king, by his desire, not hers. It was by his desire. And so we should think about these terms. And, and think about the, the how Esther acted in faith and in trust. 
faith in God and faith that he would bring about his will. When it's time for her to go into the king, she could have chosen any ornaments. She didn't even choose that for herself. She didn't even decide, oh, this would make me look better or, or this other thing would make me look better. She humbly asked the eunuch to guide her in that. There's nothing that she could have done. It was all done for her. I want to reread this one passage here as I'm starting to wrap up. In Esther chapter 2 and verse 17, we read it before. It says, The king loved Esther more than all the other women, and she obtained grace and favor in the sight in his sight, more than all the virgins. So he set the royal crown upon her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. The word grace and favor in this passage is the same words that God uses when he looked down on the earth and he saw Noah and found Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Not perfection, not righteousness, not doing everything good, not keeping all the truth. Grace. Noah found grace. Esther found grace. And because of that, they both saved their families. As we'll see later in part two. You may have noticed in my Last few sermons, I've been talking a lot about this, this struggle between our desire to earn salvation, as it were, to earn our way into the kingdom, and the humility to just accept that it is done for us by Christ Jesus. Paul says in Colossians chapter 1, verse 13, he has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of his love, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. The word conveyed there is a combination of two words, which means it's, it's to, to transport or carry, but be attended with, or to be, to be transported by somebody. We have been, Paul says, conveyed to the kingdom. It's done if we live in faith. We have faith in that. The works, they are a manifestation of that faith. What does James say? I will show you by my works. Works come after. Faith comes first. Our natural broken human response to sin and failure. What is that? We all sin. We all fail. We all fall short. What do we do? We try and make up for it, don't we? We'll try and do something to, to fix it. Let me fix it. What can I do? There's nothing we can do. When it comes to redemption, when it comes to being restored, to that rightful relationship with God, there is nothing we can do. These desires, 
to be better, to not sin, to not hurt one another, to, to, to not fall away from God. These are good desires. They're good. But they become weights around us if they replace our faith. We need to have the faith that Paul is talking about to trust that he is able to deliver us and transport us, convey us into the kingdom of his own precious son. When we actually try to make up for the things that we've done, in this sense, we're defying our king. We're being like Vashti. We're defying the salvation that he brings to us when we're critical of ourselves or when we're critical of one another about obeying and following the law of God. We all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. The reason I've been talking about this a lot is because we can so easily fall into this practice of legalism, especially in our church today. We have beautiful truth. We have beautiful understanding of God's holy day. They're so vital. Curtis and I were talking earlier about how N.T. Wright doesn't see some of the things that we see because we keep the holy day, because we practice these things that are rich and powerful and helpful in us, in our life, but they cannot replace the faith that we have, that we are redeemed through Christ alone. It is only through him and through the power of his blood. Esther shows us how to live, how to have this faith. She never wavered. You know, you read the rest of the story, and I'd encourage you to do so, and I hope I get to do part two. But she never lost faith. She trusted in God to deliver when there was no possibility, what would that even look like? And God turns the whole story on its head. We can just have faith that God has delivered us. Relax. The pressure's off. Walk in that newness of life. Walk in the beautiful truth that God has given us and know that it's not through that that we are saved is through the blood of Jesus Christ. We live in a fallen world. We are fallen, and the only way that we can do this 